Welcome to the Biomed Central Podcast. Today we're talking to Professor Sean Treweek. Sean is Professor of Health Services Research in the Health Services Research Unit at the University of Aberdeen and leads the TrialForge initiative, which aims to make trials more efficient. Uh, Sean, please tell us a bit about your chosen area of research. My main research interest is in how we can make doing trials more efficient. So we all recognise that randomised trials are absolutely central to any healthcare system that thinks of itself as an evidence-based healthcare system. So they're, they're right there at the heart of it. What is surprising is that the way people like myself, who are trial designers and trial methodologists and trialers, the way we make our decisions is actually remarkably weak with regard to an evidence base to inform those decisions. So we are often forced to make decisions that are really judgment-based or experience-based or, well, it seemed to be okay last time. And that is remarkable given how important trials are. So we are not evidence-informed in our own decision-making. So the research I'm trying to do is is to make a little bit, make these decisions a little bit more evidence informed by improving the evidence base for decisions around, for example, how should we develop a recruitment strategy for this particular trial? What are the components of that strategy that we have every reason to believe would be effective? Or how should we develop an evidence informed retention strategy? How should we make decisions about trial management? What's the best way to disseminate our trial results? So all of these areas are actually rather thin with regard to an evidence base. I want to try and improve that along with lots of other colleagues. That's actually a key component of what I'm doing is that I want it to be very, very collaborative because I think it's it's a very big job. It's not something that one guy up in Aberdeen can solve. So that's the the focus of the research, how to make trials more efficient. Um, But I wanted to talk a little bit about one article uh, that I published in trials along with many other colleagues uh, linked to a particular trial and it's on recruitment and this trial was called Be Well and it was a community-based lifestyle change trial and it was aimed at people uh, who had had a precancerous bowel polyp uh, that had been picked up at part of the colorectal cancer screening program and they had um, they were overweight and there was an opportunity there so they'd had a bit of a scare but it, it wasn't cancerous. They had a scare. There was an opportunity to say, okay, maybe this will be a time to think about making some improved lifestyle choices. And that was the trial. Essentially, here's an intervention to help people uh, who have had these bowel polyps uh, improve their lifestyle choices. And we compared that to routine care, which essentially for these individuals at that point, there would have been nothing special happened to them. Uh, and the trial was was fine. It had a, itself, it had a... a it showed a benefit in favour of the intervention. This particular paper was about the recruitment challenges. And again, it fits into this idea of trying to improve the efficiency of trials. What we wanted to do was talk about the things we did to uh, improve recruitment, but also the challenges we faced and and where perhaps we might start to focus some energy uh, on making things more efficient. And what we really wanted to say was all of us, ourselves most definitely included, need to be much more careful when we start planning our recruitment strategies and be much more conservative, frankly, uh, in our belief about the number of participants who are out there, the number of participants who will say yes, 
uh, the, the ease with which we can get approvals, the ease with which we can convince our clinical collaborators that our trial is a really good idea. Uh, you know, it's not always as obvious to the other people who who are involved in a trial that this trial is is worth their time. Uh, so that that article is almost therapy for ourselves. We we got the trial. We'd recruited actually slightly more uh, than we needed in in the end. Retention was excellent, uh, but it, we ended up having an extension. It was it was a sort of therapy to describe what happened. Uh, how we managed to hit our targets and how we might do things better in the future, but particularly thinking of these are things that other trialists might want to think about. I, I, we were overly optimistic in a number of ways and we were fessing up, I guess, in that article. Uh, and, and I enjoyed writing it. The text uh, in there was quite fun to write in places because it was a sort of fessing up uh, article, which was one of the nice things about putting it to trials. I I'd actually like the um, openness to a style of writing which is a, not quite so dry as some other journals might be. So what made you decide to publish in uh, Trials Journal in particular? So I think Trials is right on the money for the sort of work I do. So if we're thinking of anything, any piece of research work that is linked to improving a trial process uh, or discussing how we might think again or think differently about trial processes and the way we make decisions, then for me, trials is the journal uh, to go to. I, th I think it has a nice wide scope. It's interested in the whole trial pathway from thinking about the research question, how to do that right through to dissemination of trial results. So everything in between those two things, I think trials covers. So it's open to them. I think it's very innovative so my sense I have some ideas about how we might uh, improve the way we present some of our research information and uh, my strong sense uh, not only from what you already published but from talking to staff at the journal is that trials is open to new ideas about how we might present research information in journals so for me trials is bang on the money for what I do which is trial methods research uh, but also, I, I think it's open to doing things differently. I think it's, uh, you know, ahead of the curve, really. Uh, so I want to build up a relationship with the journal trials, not only in terms of just publishing material there, but also with the people behind the journal. Trials, like all biomedical journals, is an open access journal. Uh, could you give us a few thoughts on uh, open access? Uh, do you think it's a good thing? you think it's an important thing? Absolutely. I, I think it's an absolutely fabulous development of the last sort of 10 to 15 years. Uh, so I think Biomed came out, or the idea of having a the Biomed stable of journals came out when I was working in Oslo, which is sort of a little bit over a decade ago. Uh, and I really, really strongly support open access. Uh, I have to confess that my heart sinks often if I find some article that I'd like to get and it is not an open access journal. Even if my university has access to it, it's it's an extra bit of pain required to get the article and sometimes it's just impossible to get it. Here. Whereas my heart sings if I see that it's an open access publication. You don't have to mess about figuring out with passwords and usernames and whether your institution has access. So as a way of getting research out there to people who are interested in it, uh, open access is a no-brainer. It's definitely 
the way to go. And certainly in the past, I did a lot more work with groups working in low and middle income countries. And it, it's chalk and cheese. If open access, of course, it's available. Um, if it's a paywall type of journal, then very often it might as well not have been written as far as those institutions are concerned. They don't have the resources to get it. So if we want research access to be put into the hands of people who might benefit from it and who, whose decisions might be improved by access to this research information, then open access is the way to go. Uh, so you are a leading figure for the TrialForge initiative. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? The recognition that isn't it strange that something that's as important as a randomised trial to evidence-based medicine that is itself the way we go about designing them or running them, uh, choosing our analysis approaches perhaps, and certainly dissemination of the results. Th those decisions, that process uh, is remarkably non-evidence-based to a very great extent. That recognition, and also that recognition that it's, that situation has been the case for a long time and has been recognized as being the case for a long time, and yet it continues, was the motivation for the Trial Forge initiative. Can we do something which is a bit more systematic about identifying what we do know about effective ways of doing particular trial processes? And that doing that will identify what we don't know. Where are the, the gaps? What, where is evidence not available when we really ought to have some evidence? So with Trial Forge, what I want to do is can we systematically start to identify what we do know about effective trial processes, what we don't know about effective trial processes? And if there's a process that we think is important, so let's say it's some element of retention for which we have no information whatsoever to base our decision making on, then we really ought to, as a community, do something about it rather than just wringing our hands. So the second part, if you like, of the Trial Forge initiative is, OK, here's a gap. Let's do something about it. So we want to coordinate collaborative efforts to fill those gaps. So let's bring groups together. So, OK, let's try and address this particular problem. It's an important problem. Let's do something about it. Generate some evidence, almost certainly across a whole range of trials in different trial groups around the world. And then once we have that piece of evidence, we want that bit of evidence to be added to whatever knowledge there was before and disseminated. So it's a three part deal, really. Identify what we know and what we don't know. Do something about filling these gaps when we don't do anything. And then once we've got some information, let's tell the world about it. And the, the really, really key thing, I think, about many of this, these trial process improvements is that we are highly unlikely uh, in a, if we think about retention strategies, uh, to transform poor retention into absolutely fabulous retention by doing a single thing. Now, these magic bullets, they don't really exist. What we're thinking of with the trial forge idea is what we want to do is make lots of small to moderate efficiency improvements, which together add up to something really meaningful. And the light bulb moment for that uh, was the 2012 London Olympics with the British cycling team. It's sort of marginal gains. You do a little bit of improvement in one thing and a little bit of improvement in something else. And you do that across the whole process of riding a bike for the Olympic teams. Um, and it adds up to something really, really important. That's what we want to do with Trial Forge. Each individual thing might be a small little improvement 
in efficiency. But if you start doing that from the research question choice right through to dissemination, then it adds up to something important. Great. I know you touched on, uh, touched on this briefly. How can this make clinical trials better? If you look carefully um, at what goes off in the field of trials, then we, it's not difficult to find trials that have made design decisions, for example, that render them largely irrelevant uh, or not as relevant as they could be. Either the question was answered a long time ago and thousands of, not thousands, well, thousands of participants, perhaps dozens of trials have continued to crack away at the same question. Uh, or the outcome measure that has been selected is clinically irrelevant because we no longer care about the comparative that, that has been used. Uh, or the individual participants who are in the trial are really not like the sorts of participants that those whose decisions you're trying to inform are interested in. With the Trial Forge initiative and, and other initiatives that are looking at efficiency improvements, what we're really wanting to push to the fore is we, we really do need to think much more about whose decisions are we trying to improve by doing this trial and what do we already know. So there's a great piece of work um, reported, it was in the Lancet Research Waste Series a few years ago, I think it was an article by Ian Chalmers and colleagues, uh, and they were reporting that, you know, they, they were reporting a survey. I don't think they had done it themselves, but essentially they'd looked at trialists, asked the trialists uh, whether they knew about relevant uh, reviews prior to designing their trial, and fewer than half did. So, you know, about half of the trials uh, that were done in that bunch had no knowledge, were designed with no knowledge of previous trials. And that really is nonsense um, because there are a whole raft of decisions that they made that almost certainly should have should have been different or could have been different had they had knowledge of what had gone before. So it's entirely possible for those future trials, these newer trials, to have been completely irrelevant. Uh, so scientific inefficiency of the first order in the sense that they spend uh, years, hundreds or thousands of participants, goodwill and time, lots of staff time, clearly money, and at the end of it nobody cares because the question they've answered is irrelevant uh, because of decisions they have made early on which should have been different had they only looked to the literature. So that sort of problem is the sort of problem that I think Trial Forge Initiative, the, the Trial Forge Initiative and other similar initiatives linked to improving elements of trial efficiency is how we can make trials better. And also, even if we make really sensible decisions about the design of our research question and our choice of things uh, like the individual participants we put in the trial, it is entirely possible to have lots of process inefficiency in the sense that we do things in a really um, inefficient or sort of flabby uh, way so we, we we get to the finishing line, but whoa, it has, it has been hard work and harder than it needed to be. And I think part of the problem there is that we don't have a strong evidence base to allow us to make uh, evidence-informed decisions about how best to do processes. So we might have a scientifically very very good trial in terms of efficiency. It's the right question. It's got the right uh, primary outcome. It's got the right people in it. But other bits of our process have really been very inefficient. We've, we've got the right primary outcome. We've collected dozens of other outcomes. Uh, actually, we don't need, we didn't need to collect so much outcome data. We've made our trial flabby. Um, so yeah, we got to the finishing line, but it's, it's inefficient.
And I hope that Trial Forge and this greater recognition, particularly in the UK, of the damage that research waste is doing to healthcare and uh, it's, you know the, the inability to improve patient health to the extent that we ought to, given the resources we're putting into it, into research, uh, I think is is really really now is a good time to be in the field that I'm in. How do we improve trial methods? Fantastic. Um, what role do you think publishers could uh, could have to help in this area? So I think one of the there's a few well for about five years uh, I was involved with a project looking at clinical guidelines and one of the major findings from that study uh, which opened my eyes a bit was uh, how tricky it is for all sorts of people including people like me who are trial methodologists to tease out the key information from research publications and certainly guidelines. People really wanted information delivered in layers. What's the most important thing? Uh, and then lots of the other bits of information are interesting to some, but by no means all of the people who may look at, at that document or, or that resource. And I think that transfers fantastically to trials. Um, it, so from the publishing side, I think it, we ought to think again about how we publish research information. Uh, and indeed, Doug Altman, of course, who is uh, one of the editors of Trials, he wrote an article a few years ago really questioning whether research articles in their current form are fit for purpose. And he was talking about much more structured, tabulated approaches. And the way we write articles now and the way we publish articles now, very often it's, you know, it could be 1825 in the way that we write them. There's a sort of, it's almost like sitting in front of a, a roaring fire with a big book saying, you know, let's, let us begin. And then there's a sort of slow preamble when actually we just want to know whether the thing worked or not. And the abstract, the short summary may be the only thing that people write. And yet we've got another eight pages of stuff. Um, uh, lots of the information is in the text. Some of it is in tables. Some of it is in figures. It, it, it's, it's a difficult journey that people have sometimes. So for publishers, I think it would be great if publishers were willing to reconsider how research information is presented to readers. And again, I think trials, um, not only because of Doug Altman's article, but um, Daniel Shanahan, who I've spoken to from uh, Biomed and Trials, are, are really open, I think, to this idea of publishing research in a different way. And I think we all, publishers as well, need to recognize that we have very little time. We really want to get the key piece of information quickly. And I suspect that we ought to really change the way we make our research articles look so we don't have this sort of yeah it's like a little little novel uh, some of the time and, uh, and actually we, very often we just want to know did it work what did they do what are the conclusions and many of the readers uh, of much certainly of trial reports the main trial reports uh, many of our readers in quotes are machines or will increasingly become machines in the sense that we want to have some uh, piece of software somewhere that is hoovering up data from trial reports and shoving them into systematic reviews. And as long as we bury, continue to bury research results in the narrative text, um, that's going to be very, very hard. 
Um, so I think we need to think much more differently about the way we structure our research articles. And I think that's one of the key ways publishers can help to improve trial efficiency and the use of research evidence in the future. Uh, so you're a regular uh, blog writer, you're pretty active on Twitter. Um, do, you, do you think these are good platforms for researchers to promote research, um, to promote ideas and to have discussion? I do, yeah. Um, I have written some blogs, but I haven't written that many. Uh, and that's to my great shame, I think. So I have written some. Um, I know have colleagues who write far more. But I think the great thing about blogs and Twitter, which I do use a lot, um, I think it's a, it's a different style. Uh, and it's a much faster, succinct, particularly Twitter. And so I'm a great believer in Twitter. I was very skeptical uh, until I started using it, uh, actually actively sending stuff out. And then that took me about two days to become gripped by it. So I personally have Twitter as my main source of information uh, about my field right now. I think it's a fabulous way. And one of the things it forces you to do is think, okay, I have just written something which has got 10 pages to it. Um, I now have about two sentences and a link at most to summarize the key findings. So it really focuses your attention uh, and it has a much wider audience. So, you know, over time you build up more followers. And if I give a talk in Aberdeen, say, that I'm talking to 30 people, if I send out a tweet, uh, you know, it's over a thousand who could look at it. They won't all look at it, but it's much wider reach. So I think uh, Twitter definitely and blogs too are ways of repackaging your work and ideas and generating some content that you can spread far and wide and reach people who you'd otherwise not be able to reach uh, on a regular basis. So, you know, a number of times, again, particularly through Twitter, which I do a lot, uh, have met people at meetings who've said, yeah, well, you know, I just want to say hi because... Um, we've been following each other for a year on Twitter and now we've suddenly bumped into each other face to face. Uh, but you've built up a bit of a relationship uh, on Twitter. So I think for personally, I think all researchers should be doing uh, a, a, some blogs, uh, certainly Twitter, uh, and think of it as, a, as another way, another channel for disseminating certainly your own research, the research of others, uh, and ideas, uh, of course, knocking up a tweet is is very quick. It's not like you know writing a research article or an abstract for a presentation. It's it's really quick. Um, so it's just another channel. What we're on about is dissemination. We want stuff out there. I think they're great for it. Would you have any advice, any any tips for fellow researchers on how they um, could promote their research, how they could begin to promote their research more effectively? Well, I mean, I, I, I know I keep rambling on about Twitter, but I really think Twitter is fabulous. Uh, and I think it is a way of getting research. People at all stages of their career should be on Twitter, and it is a great way of getting your research seen by other people, people you, you might not ever meet, uh, or at least it would be difficult to come into contact with. So as a top tip, if you're going to do one thing, I think you should get a Twitter account and you should dive in, not lurk uh, in the background, um, but you should dive in and don't just retweet, but send stuff yourself. Uh, and people do get in touch with you and ask, you know, have a bit of a, a discussion. Uh, and there are a couple of collaborations that I've got involved with via Twitter. Uh, and there are certainly people I've invited to take part in grant proposals because I've 
become aware of their work on Twitter. So it opens up channels for collaboration, it opens up dissemination channels, and it's easy to do. It's not difficult. And again, just to keep banging on about it, I personally think it's the best way to keep up to date in your field. So uh, I know there's a bit of, there, there are lots of stories about and pictures of cute cats on Twitter and people taking photographs <laughs> of plates of food, but uh, it depends who you follow. So I think Twitter is one of the best tools for keeping up to date in trial methodology. It's not all about cats. Uh, it depends who you follow. So I would give that as my top tip. Uh, get a Twitter account, start using it and dive in. To read and hear more science stories, subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter at Biomed Central or visit our blogs at blogs.biomedcentral.com. All of our published research articles are also openly accessible on biomedcentral.com. Thank you for listening.